What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. In previous presentations here at Rachel's World, we've talked about visual literacy, or the set of skills and habits necessary to read images. While there's a whole set of skills that we use to read all kinds of images, there are specific kinds of images that need some more special habits just for them. Take maps, for example. Maps require us to read with an eye towards spatial literacies that other images do not. To really grasp what a map is conveying, we must grasp its spatial perspective and understand its use of spatial dimensions through scale. Maps also have lots of other conventions to convey information. A map's key tells us what to look for. A map's symbols convey specific information, and numbers need to be interpreted for longitude and latitude. Understanding these conventions is the first step towards properly reading a map. These skills represent just basic map literacy, but from there we need to move on to more complex skills of comprehension. We need to know what a map is telling us so we can comprehend what a map tells us about terrain or elevation or other geographic landforms. Then after we comprehend it, we need to be able to transfer that information into real-world applications like finding our way or doing mathematical calculations on distances or heights. It's also possible that a map may not convey information correctly, so part of the comprehension process is also trying to figure out what it's not telling us. For example, a way a map is drawn or projected can distort land features, or sometimes maps can misrepresent data and statistics. So it's important for map readers to be able to figure out what a map's limitations are so they are not fooled. All of these map reading skills are very complex, and they are needed in order to be fully literate in map reading. So next time you look at a map or scroll around Google Earth, you may want to consider what kinds of literacies you are engaged in and see what you can do to extend those skills. Comparing print and online maps for an upcoming family vacation, using a topographical map to direct a hike in the great outdoors, or making a map of your own to show your home or neighborhood are all great ways we suggest here at Rachel's World to bring a little map literacy into your home. Who hasn't occasionally wanted a second shot at something? Would it surprise you to learn that even the best authors often want and sometimes get a second chance? Our first guest, children's book author Michael Buckley, has such a story. He talks to Rachel and her intern Olivia Noli about publishing the 10th anniversary edition of his series, The Sisters Grimm. He didn't make major changes, but he did get a chance to tweak some things. Buckley is the New York Times best-selling author, not only of The Sisters Grimm series, but also the Nerd series, the YA Trilogy, Undertow, and Kel Gilligan's Daredevil Stunt Show. He has worked in television development for Discovery Channel, TLC, Nickelodeon, and Cartoon Network, where he created the animated series Robotomy. Here's Rachel with Michael Buckley. 
I am joined today in studio by my intern, Olivia, who is prepared some questions to ask her favorite author, Michael Buckley, who we have on the phone today. So welcome, Olivia. Thank you. And welcome, Michael. We're glad to have you. Thank you. So we're going to just turn the mic over to Olivia, and we'll, we'll see these interesting things uh, that Olivia has to has to ask. And I'm I'm intrigued to hear your answers, Michael. She she has some really interesting questions. So for some background for the listeners, uh, Michael Buckley has just come out with some uh, 10th anniversary editions of his books. I think what all of the previous fans are wondering are are there any plot changes in the book, or is it just like edits to like the grammar, or what kind of things did you change? Oh, that's a good question. One of the things I tell people is it's new art, new design, and new words. Um, a lot of authors never get the opportunity to do what I'm getting to do, which is go in and make some changes. Um, but the changes aren't dramatic changes. Uh, there are very few tweaks to storylines. Um, there, there's a couple characters that disappear, and there were a couple things that I thought, oh, maybe this will this will turn into something later, and it just never did. So I uh, decided to um, to go in and tweak that, and uh, you know, make some changes. And another thing is, uh, you know, I was learning how to write a book as I was writing one, and I made a few mistakes along the way. And and you know, I the fans have been very great about writing me letters to let me know, <laughs> <laughs> and and I've tried to make correct those mistakes along the way, but. The one thing I, I always dreamed of having the chance to do was go in book by book, rewrite the whole series, and make it flow the way I wanted to. And I think I've become a better writer in the, in the, in the years since I wrote The Sisters Grimm. So basically, I'm, I'm going in tweaking sentences and moving some things around. But I don't think there's anything dramatically different. Uh, one of the things you said was about the flow and how it changed some of that. So when you were planning the books, were you doing it book arc by book arc, or did you have like an idea of how you wanted the entire series to go? Well, I had a, a general sense of uh, the villain and who um, and, and what kind of confrontation Sabrina and Daphne would have at the end of the series. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also knew the path that I wanted Sabrina to take to becoming a better person. So those things were pretty much in cement. And then I had some plot ideas for books, and I followed them pretty closely until I got to about the seventh book, and I realized that it was moving in a direction that I had not anticipated. And I decided to um, to take a chance and, and, and follow that, that thread. So, yeah, I, I would say that they were plotted out very tightly until until they weren't <laughs> and then um because that's sort of the nature of writing you know you've probably heard the story before from writers that that characters seem to have a, lives of their own and they they do what they they want to do and mm-hmm. there is some truth to that can, can you give us an example of that maybe something where that did happen like where you were taking it one direction but sabrina wanted it in a different <laughs> direction yeah, well, I know there was a, a, I had proposed this idea, I think for the eighth book, where there would be a uh, an invasion by the Little Mermaid on into the town, um, and, the, and the mer people would sort of conquer the town for a brief amount of time, and, 
but uh, I think that there, I was surprised when Sabrina actually met the Little Mermaid and how she reacted to her and how she didn't really care for her very much. And I began to to look clo- more closely at the character and realized I didn't care much for that character either. Um, and there were like, you know, there were things where I'm like, okay, well, Sabrina covered this in the third book or the fourth book. You know, she tried to get over these things that she that were bothering her and, and making her a difficult person. And I realized that, like, change is slow in real, in real people. And change is slow for Sabrina, too. So whenever I would say, okay, she's going to learn how to be trusting in the third book, I and at the end, there just wasn't any way to wrap up that in a nice little bow. So because she just wasn't, you know it was going to take work on her part. So th- those are the kinds of things that, that surprised me in writing the books. Well, that's, that's what people are in real life. They're complex and, and constantly working on themselves. And why should I wrap everything up so sweet and pretty in a story if that's not what real life is like? And I think that's what Sabrina taught me mostly. So in in the stories, uh, you said you made like minor edits and things changed. Was there anything mm-hmm. major you were tempted to change? Well, I would say the the major thing that I'm I was tempted to change was to was to make it perfect. I mean, <laughs> you know, I think a writer uh, uh, the only reason any book ever gets published is because the editor usually has to physically threaten the author to get the book. <laughs> away from them because we would just keep writing these things over and over and over until they, you know, who knows if they would ever reach a level of of perfection. So, you know, I learned something very valuable from George Lucas. A few years ago, he put out a special edition of the Star Wars movies that had all brand new special effects. And he went in and changed some things he hated. And the truth is, is I, I don't think that they made a, a difference, and I don't think that they improved the story. In fact, it um, it seemed as if he just put a monster in the background of every scene, and it became distracting. And I told myself early on that that some of the mistakes in here are uh, have to stay, you know, because that's who I was at that time, and I shouldn't be pretending that I was some master children's book author at that time that I had to that I made clumsy errors. So I think that's the thing that was the biggest challenge was to, to go through each sentence and go, okay, do I, you know, I hate this sentence, but do I need to fix it? <laughs> and that that's a hard thing to do as a writer is to see a mistake and let it stay. Um, I would say there was, I don't think there was too many things that I wanted to, that I really wanted to fix. I would say there were parts of like the eighth book. I cut out a lot of that. I probably lost about 15 pages of that book. Wow. Because it it was just them running through the same kind of thing over and over and over. And uh, it was, it it became tedious um, when I was reading it to my son. I'm like, Oh my goodness, this is so, (laughs) this is so long winded. So there were, there were some nice ways of like, uh, uh, actually reading it to my kid showed me they were like oh i don't need this and i don't need this and and then when you tighten it up you realize like this is a much stronger story and in fact it, it resonates emotionally much better so i'm mm-hmm. i'm happy with the with the changes so far i'm almost finished with the ninth one right now 
Whatever you do next, Michael, I am sure you're going to find readers out there who are going to love it. We really appreciate your your craft and your attention to your craft and uh, are grateful that you could join us today and, and answer some of Olivia's burning questions. So thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Michael Buckley, author of the Sisters Grimm series, celebrating its 10-year anniversary edition. Next, Rachel welcomes young adult book author Wendelin Van Dronen, who talks about her newly published book, Wild Bird, and what inspired her to write it. She also shares her mission as an author, to write stories that will help kids to look at tough situations before they happen. Van Dronen has written more than 30 novels for young readers, including the Sammy Keys Mystery Series, recipient of the Edgar Award, and Flipped, which became a Warner Brothers feature film in 2010. Other titles include The Secret Life of Lincoln Jones and The Running Dream, and two other series, The Shredder Man and The Gecko and Sticky. A high school classroom teacher for 15 years, Wendelin is now a full-time writer. Here's Rachel and Wendelin Van Dronen. We're on the phone today with one of my very favorite authors, Wendelin Van Dronen. Welcome, Wendelin. Thank you. Happy to be here. I am so excited to chat with you today. I have long been a fan of your work, and I hope that if my listeners don't know of your work, that after this segment airs, that they will know more about your work. But let's start out today visiting a little bit about your most current work, Wild Bird. So tell us a little bit about what inspired this book. Wow. Well, Wild Bird, um, oh, it, it, like all my books, it kind of takes a while for an idea to stew and to, to come to a place where I'm willing to commit a couple of years to writing it. Um, but I think what inspired Wild Bird was just being a teacher for many years. I taught high school for 15 years, and then I also taught classes at a continuation school. So in, over the years, I've met a lot of troubled teens, and um, I've been exposed to a lot of different ways of trying to help kids who were going down a wrong path, and wilderness therapy was one of them. And I think that in, a, in the desert, you can learn things that you, you can't learn elsewhere, like resiliency and resourcefulness and like accountability and self-confidence, like living, surviving in, in the desert, in, in the situation that Ren is in with her group of people who have it. It's not a cushy camp that they go to. Um, but you have the opportunity to, to put tools in your toolbox, you know, your skills, so that you can better learn to deal with life. Because I think adversity helps us discover how strong we can be. I couldn't agree more about that sense of adversity. And I, I think one of the things I love about your characters, and particularly this character, is that sense of it is the adversity that kind of builds who we are. I think with books like The Running Dream and Runaway and other books like that, you really look at that kind of sense of how does that adversity build who we become and how does that progress us as individuals so in writing this book really what was your intent for the reader what what do you hope that the reader will take away from sharing this transformative experience with ren oh so much <laughs> so much 
But I, I, I think probably the biggest thing is that I, I hope readers will take away like a, des- a, a desire to define a desire to define who they want to be. Because I think when we're kids, we're we're kind of encouraged to think about what we want to become, but we're we're not encouraged as much to think about who we want to become. Like, like what kind of person do we want to be? Do we want to be someone who who gives into peer pressure, someone whose values are corrupted by the need to fit in, or do we want to be someone who is compassionate and and thoughtful and a good friend? And what does it take to become that person? I, I love this sense kind of of our I guess our moral development I, is the only way I can think of for for saying it. And it's interesting to me that there's that great sense of morality and, and personal development in this book. Because oftentimes when we talk about children's books, particularly with these kind of hard, harsh subjects, you know, talking about the first chapter being a girl essentially being kidnapped from her home, some people think, particularly adults, they will say, oh, you know, this isn't a moral book or this isn't something that I want my children to read because they equate that kind of harshness with a lack of morality. So so how would you speak to, to people like that that say, oh, you know, my child doesn't need to read about this really harsh situation um, and this young girl's development in this really harsh environment? Well, I, I, I think that kids are smarter than we sometimes give them credit for being, and that they can they can um, they can take and absorb the lessons that are in stories that are not setting out to preach to them. So if you put very often in my books, I will set the scene and I will have the events occur in such a way that you don't really get that there's a lesson or a moral to the story until you're at the end of it and you've already you've you've already acquired that you know you've already absorbed that so because i know when i was a kid i didn't want to read books where you know an adult was trying to tell me how to live my life or what to do or how i should be or not be um but by seeing a kid in a situation that and and then backtracking to what was it that got them into the position that they're in now. And, and for Wren, that, that was simply that she was lonely and she couldn't find, um, she couldn't find friends in her new school and she, was, she wound up getting tangled up in this, this, this uh, relationship with another girl that was not at all healthy. And that, um, so, so, but I think that we, we as parents, because I have two kids of my own, um, we as parents think that we're doing a good job of guiding our kids and our kids would never, never do this or they know better than to do that. But in reality, kids are in school, uh, you know, for the majority of their day. And the influences that they have at school, we can't monitor all of those. So it's like preparing your child for this situation because you don't know everything that's going on with them. And, and the reality is they're not going to confide everything in you, especially the tough stuff. So through a book, we can see what happens to a child who then takes this wrong step and winds up in a, in a really bad place. That could be any of us. Yeah, it really just takes one step. And I think even the good kids we might characterize could take that step. And and reading about the realities of somebody else who had to go through this probably brings them a a little bit of sense of their own reality and, and helps them kind of go through things that 
they don't then have to go through themselves. Would would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. And I, I think that by, by seeing uh, a character correct the missteps of their life um, will help the reader then know what to do or know what not to do should they face those own that same sort of situation at school or in their life somewhere else. Um, and what Ren goes through is very typical of what kids, especially in middle school, where you've gone from an elementary school, which is pretty nurturing, to all of a sudden you're in this bigger school with tougher kids who are older and more worldly, and there's this immense need to fit in when you're in middle school. You want to find your own you know, club of people to be with. And I, I think that's why I write books that can be read by kids in middle school. So my, my subjects are edgier than what we might think of as being a middle school book. They're edgier, but they never cross that line. Um, it's my self-imposed line from having kids myself. It's like, if my kid were in middle school, would I want them reading this content or with this language? You know. So, um, and if my answer is no, then I'm not going to put that content or language in a book that I think is most appropriate or that fit, would fit in nicely with with a middle school audience because I do think it's important to address those before the fact rather than those subjects before the fact rather than after the fact. Thank you, Wendlin. I I really appreciate you characterizing your book in that way. And I, I think it will be a great boon for our listeners to know, you know, this, this really is a powerful book that, that is a great opportunity for kids to engage in maybe some tough topics, but in, in a more safe environment. So thank you for that. It has been an honor, Wendelin. Thank you so much for taking time to speak with us today. I am an admirer and a fan of your work and hope that this short segment will help all of our listeners out there become the same kind of fan I am. And I am looking forward to all the things to come from you into the future. Thank you so much, Rachel. This was really great. Rachel Wadham with children's book author Wendelin Van Dronen, who talks about her newly published book, Wild Birds. Finally, Cole Wissinger, a member of the World's Awaiting Team, talks to Jeff Simpson, co-host of The Matt Townsend Show and host of Screen Cleaning, both on BYU Radio. Jeff begins by talking about screen cleaning and its pursuit of family-friendly books and media. You know, there is so much entertainment out there that is really not something that I would want to participate in with my family. Um, But there's also a lot out there that if you just are willing to look for it, that uh, is just so good and uplifting. And there's plenty of entertainment that you can sit down and, and watch together with your family. And that's what we try to do. We try to shine a big old spotlight on all that is good in entertainment. We interview people that are in the business, whether it's movie critics or filmmakers. Basically, we try to put on an entertaining show about entertainment. That's good for the whole family. So when you say entertainment and you mention movies, you're a big movie guy. But what all what all kinds of entertainment do you think uh, works for kids? What, what kind of variety does that all... Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it not it's not limited to, to movies. It could be sports. It could be recreational activities. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. There are two things that my father, my father instilled a love in me for, I think I said that right, uh, not only movies, 
I, so I grew up watching really old classic movies and pretty much any movie you could imagine I've seen. Um, but he also instilled in me a love for reading. And that has been huge for me, um, not only because it's a fun thing to do, but I can remember my father sitting down and reading Uncle Remus stories to us. And if you're not familiar with Uncle Remus, those are the stories uh, about Br'er Rabbit, Br'er Fox, Br'er Bear, and he would do all the voices for these stories, you know, like Br'er Rabbit, please, oh, please don't throw me in that briar patch. So I th- I really think that's where uh, my creativity was sparked, was sitting down, reading these books with my dad. And one of my regrets in my life is that I didn't read longer with my father. What I mean by that is he wanted to keep reading with me well into my teens, and I was getting to that age where that was the lame, the uncool thing to do, right? To read, sit down and read a book with somebody else. But I would love to go back and continue doing that with my dad. That's so great. And you are a voiceover artist. It's it's another thing that you do in addition to working here at BYU mm-hmm. Radio. And so I imagine that your children now, as you are a father, um, are introduced to quite the theater of voices when you get to read out loud, right? That's right. You know, one of my favorites growing up is a little book called The Monster at the End of This Book. Oh, one of my personal favorites. Yeah, starring <laughs> Grover. And I mean, it's a genius book because any parent knows that whenever you tell a, a, a child not to do something, they just want to do it even more. And so, of course, that book is full of Grover pleading uh, to the reader, don't turn the page. There's a monster at the end of this book. Please don't turn the page. But that's one that I enjoy doing with my girls, uh, doing different voices. Yeah. Any other personal favorites to read out loud? Yes. Or to just or to just read to them. What are some of your favorites maybe that your father read to you and you now want to pass down to this new generation? Yeah. One of them is uh, Sideways Stories from Wayside School by Lewis Sacker. And the, this starts out so perfectly with uh, a substitute a story about a substitute teacher who may be a witch who is doesn't like children and is turning each one of them into an apple as they continue to annoy her. So the chapters in this book involve... Uh, the the name the title of each chapter is somebody's name, so it goes through this whole class of kids, and they each get their own little story. Just a clever, odd book. The other one is probably my favorite book of all time, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory by Roald Dahl, of course, and uh, that also translates into one of my favorite movies as well, starring the wonderful Gene Wilder. That's another one that uh, I've tried to get my girls to sit down and read with me. They might be a little too young because we haven't made it all the way through the book, and it's really kind of I'm the one instigating the reading of that. But, uh, yeah, I have a lot of wonderful memories reading books that I hope to someday get my children to love just as much as I do. So whether it be books or movies or or however that entertaining entertainment comes and that good family-friendly entertainment comes, what do you hope to spark in your kids now? Imagination. Uh, I really, really do feel like movies and books have a wonderful way of not only helping us escape as viewers. We love to escape some of the worldly problems that we have or that we create for ourselves. But it gives us an opportunity to see the world through the eyes of somebody else, 
through a character in a book or through a character in a movie, to sympathize, to empathize with other people, and also to to solve problems in a way they might not otherwise have thought to do. So just it really sparks your imagination and it gives you a chance to live vicariously through somebody else, even if it's just for an hour and a half or a week or two, depending on if you're reading a book. But uh, yeah, those are my favorite parts of, of watching movies and reading books is that I get to be somebody else for a little bit and forget about all my problems. Jeff Simpson, co-host of The Matt Townsend Show and host of Screen Cleaning, both on BYU Radio, talking about the tradition of reading aloud to his children that started with his own father. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app and at BYUradio.org.